Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Kimberly Mack. Kimberly is the author of Fictional Blues, Narrative Self-Invention from Bessie Smith to Jack White, and has written for publications such as No Depression, Pop Matters, and Hot Press. Her latest book is Living Colors, Time's Up, a recent installment in the 33 and a Third music book series published by Bloomsbury Academic. Hello, Kimberly. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Well, of course. To get things started, um, can you please share with us what your book is about? Yeah. So my book is focused on a black rock band, Living Colors, second record, their sophomore effort, Time's Up. Um, That came out in 1990. And it's really a book that's taking a lot of different perspectives and angles on this one record. Um, it starts out as kind of a biography. Uh, Living Color is a band that, you know, criminally does not have a biography written about them. I mean, there is a book out there that um, has some biographical elements, but there's not kind of a straightforward bio on this band. So I wanted to remedy that. And uh, so the first chapter really lets you know who these four men are. Um, I think that their backgrounds give us a lot of insight into how they became the politically active and, um, you know, and also, of course, the musically adventurous band that they became. So that's the first chapter. The second chapter is oral history. And um, it's a making of you know, the making of the record. And um, I'm so grateful to have had the chance to interview all of the members of Living Color, all of the current members, and then the original bass player, Muzz Skillings. And then I also was able to interview the uh, producer of the record, Ed Stasian, uh, the engineer, Paul Hammingson, uh, Corey Glover's vocal coach, Greg Drew, and Werner Reed's guitar tech, Dennis Diamond. And last but not least, uh, the late, 
Greg Tate, who was a friend to the band um, and also just a legendary cultural critic who unfortunately is no longer with us. Um, but I had the opportunity to interview all these folks. So Greg Tate is not in that section, but everyone else is. And it's just a, um, you know, a really wonderful, I think, chance to get to know how this record was made. Um, and then the third chapter is personal because this is a, a very personal project for me. Um, I, I know we'll talk more about that later. Uh, so it's a memoir and, um, and also just, um, I do do it kind of a track by track, but it's all extremely personal and uh, quirky and weird. Um, and then the fourth chapter, I wanted to get the perspective of uh, the critics because, um, you know, critics had a lot to say about this band. They were critically acclaimed, um, but also, you know, their race and being a black rock band at that in that time and place in the late 80s and going into the 90s was actually, um, you know, kind of um, um, frustratingly controversial. Um, so that chapter is focused on the critical reception. So you get the critics' voices in there. And then the last chapter is um, really kind of thinking about the commercial um, the commercial uh, reception of the record and then also just the legacy, um, what this band did, what they accomplished, and um, <clears throat> how we should be thinking about them right now. And uh, yeah, so that's the book. So the members of Living Color grew up with a lot of political and musical influence in their lives. Could you tell us more about their upbringing? Yeah. Um, oh boy, what an interesting group of people. Um, I think, you know, their backgrounds were different in some ways, but what they all really shared was... Um, you know, families who were listening to all kinds of music. I think that's something that really jumped out at me when I was interviewing them. I said all of the band members uh, had very, very eclectic um, tastes. Their families had eclectic tastes and they were exposed to everything. You know, the way Vernon put it was Vernon Reed, the guitar player, the way he put it was, you know, there were no guardrails, you know, um, he was never told that a certain kind of music um, should be played or listened to um, by a person in a particular body. You know, he never had that. So he listened to everything. Um, and all the members of, of Living Color did. And um, what's also interesting is that they all ended up in New York City, you know, they all uh, met in New York City, and um, half the band is 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 um, uh, Brooklyn. Um, uh, Muzz was in Queens, and um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Will was in the Bronx. Yes. Um, so, you know, but how they got there. I think is, is very, very interesting. You know, both Vernon and uh, Doug Wimbish, the bass player, current bass player, you know, they had, they had immigrant parents who um, came from other places um, and uh, took a gamble on a new life in the United States. And Vernon Reed's 
uh, situation is particularly interesting. His parents were from Montserrat and they uh, migrated to, to London, found themselves unwelcome in London and then moved to the U.S. Um, and Doug Wimbish's um, mother was from Nassau, the Bahamas, and ended up coming to the United States. And then we've got, you know, so we've got that migration. We have the other migration, the one that most people think about um, when they think about U.S. migration. And, you know, you've got the South to the to the North. And that was certainly the story with um, Will Calhoun's family. Um, uh, that was the story with part of Doug's family. His father um, migrated from Georgia to Connecticut. Um, and... Um, and, you know, these folks had those things in common. But um, I think the other thing that all of the band really shared that makes a lot of sense when we fast forward to the Living Color um, emerging in the late 80s is that their families were all, um, you know, really politically engaged and politically conscious. And, you know, like Will Calhoun grew up in a Afrocentric home um, where he was always um, kind of, you know, reminded of the contributions of black folks in the United States and, and in a diasporic sense, you know, what black people in a diasporic sense have, have contributed to the world. Um, you know, Vernon grew up watching television um, and, you know, and seeing what was playing out uh, during the civil rights movement and, and seeing the, the hoses and the attack dogs. And, you know, he talks about it the way he said it to me was, you know, he looked down at his, at his, at his hands, um, you know, looked down, um, you know, at his, at his, at his hands and realized that, you know, the people who were on the receiving end of the attack dogs and the hoses looked just like him, you know, had his same um, skin color um, and how illuminating that was for him. Um, you know, and Corey grew up in a, a family that had a history of um, <clears throat> really, really taking social justice um, issues seriously and um, protesting and activism. So, you know, it makes total sense that, these four people would find each other, um, you know, musically adventurous souls, politically engaged souls. Um, and then also, you know, they share, I think all of them, you know, kind of a, a middle-class backgrounds. Um, they all had um, families who were, you know, hardworking um, homeowners, um, people who were just really invested and, and, and committed to living out some version of the American dream. Uh, so yeah, when you think about all of that and think about their backgrounds, it really makes sense that, that they would at some point all come together. Yes, because living color, all of them are very intelligent individuals with great musical education and there's a reason why they chose rock music over other forms they understood you know the history behind it they understood what went into it and they then they contributed to that but critics didn't quite see that connection and they labeled them um 
as almost being sellouts in some ways because they chose one form over another. And but that criticism is coming from a you know a lack of understanding and education about the erasure of black voices, about the ways that um, colonization has impacted the music industry. And I was wondering if you could tell us more a, a bit about that and and specifically criticisms they got from other musicians, which I imagine must have been really hard for them to deal with because these were other individuals going through the same kind of experiences and industry as they were. Yeah. Living color had, um, they were dealing with a lot, you know, when they, when they were, um, coming together as a band, figuring out the vision for the band, um, getting a, you know, kind of a foothold in the New York city, um, they, you know, they came out of like CBGB small clubs, New York city, new New York city band, uh, scene. And, um, you know, yeah. I mean, there are just a lot of people who didn't understand what they were trying to do. And, 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 you know, and it wasn't just white people, you know, it was black people also, you know, there are a lot of black folks who, um, you know, just didn't, didn't see rock music as black. And, you know, this is a, this is a, long-standing, structural, um, deeply embedded, still entrenched problem um, where, you know, of course, rock and roll um, came out of rhythm and blues um, and blues and rock and roll in the beginning, you know, had black people, you know, right in the forefront forefront right you know we had little richard and chuck berry and um um big joe turner and you know other folks fats domino etc etc right um very 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 visible but somewhere along the way especially when money um became obvious that there's there's real money to be made um and that this was not going away it wasn't a fad Right. And and then, you know, later in the 1960s, when rock and roll became rock, you know, was rebranded as rock, um, you know, black people were suddenly erased from this genre. Um, And I mean, effectively erased, like and it was, again, not about sonic. You know, it wasn't about what we what we're hearing. You know, Maureen Mann talked about this, um, you know, and her work has talked about it. This idea that in the 1970s, if a, if a, an artist was playing, um, a black artist was playing an electric guitar, a, let's just say rock guitar, like straight up rock guitar. Um, and there's a, there's a rock sound going on, but it's a black band, they would be categorized as funk. And if it was white folks playing the exact same music, they'd be categorized as rock. And, you know, this, this separation and this erasure, again, as I said, was so complete and so successful that Black people also internalized this and, and moved away from, from rock and, 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 you know, um, and just decided that rock was, was, was white. So, you know, living color, when they are you know, emerging. And of course, Vernon Reed and, and Greg Tate and Condé Mason had formed the Black Rock Coalition in 1985 to kind of address some of this stuff. But 
you know, nonetheless, they're making this music and they're, and they are hearing from black folks, you know, what are you doing? Corey Glover talked about that in the book, you know? Um, and then they're hearing from white folks, what are you doing? Um, and then of course, breaking through into the industry was an uphill battle for them. I mean, an absolute uphill battle. Mick Jagger, yes, produced their, their demo. And I think a lot of times people think, okay, yeah, Mick Jagger, you know, snapped his fingers and everything opened and, and, you know, they still couldn't get signed for a while after that because the industry just didn't have an imagination for what to do with a black rock band. Like, what do we do with this band? How do we, how do we market this band and who's going to want to see this? Um, so they really, really, really had a tough way to go. Also what they were dealing with is that they didn't, ha- did they then did have, um, success, you know, it did happen with the first record, um, quite spectacular, um, commercial success, you know, selling millions of copies of that album, um, winning a Grammy, winning, you know, MTV awards, you know, all this stuff, of course, critical accolades, um, critical reviews, uh, like, like positive critical reviews. Um, you know, they really had everything going for them. Um, once, the record gained some traction, you know, they were touring with the Rolling Stones and the Steel Wheels tour and that helped. Um, But then you had, then they had another problem uh, within the Black Rock Coalition because there were other Black bands in there and other Black Rock bands who were not necessarily in the Black Rock Coalition who just didn't attain that same level of commercial success and, and, and not through any fault of their own. Um, necessarily, but just really, you know, the industry, again, didn't have the imagination, you know, you would think that after Living Colors, incredible success commercially, and all the money they made for folks, that they would want to, you know, snap up as many bands as they could, and they were signing bands, the Black Rock, you know, there were Black Rock coalitions who were signed, but they just weren't getting the actual support, like they weren't, it's not enough to just sign a band and say, okay, go off now, you know, do what living color did and come back to us. That's not, that's not, that's not how it works. You want, you need a real promotional push, you know, you need a real marketing vision and, you know, those bands didn't get it. So, you know, so unfortunately, yeah, there was also a sense of, of, um, you know, some saltiness, you know, some, some other bands, the Blackwell coalition, you know, kind of felt like, and, and Vernon talks about this in the book, you know, kind of felt like, you know, it just seems shady that Vernon Reed starts the Black Rock Coalition and, and his band is the band that gets all the, all the shine, you know. Uh, so, yeah, they were, they, <laughs> they were dealing with a lot. And um, from a 21st century perspective, with rock no longer being in the same space or you know ascendant in the same way that it once was it might seem ludicrous like how could how could this have been such a big deal and how could they have had to deal with so much but that really was what they were struggling with and their success is a testament to not just their talent but their you know their their stubbornness right and their and their and you know their 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 work ethic and all the all the things and um so this is just a really important band, a groundbreaking band. You know, this is the most successful 
commercially successful all black rock band since Band of Gypsies. And there's been no one since that has matched this. That was Is very it- long. <laughs> no, no, it's an absolutely wonderful answer. It's a, it was a great response, and I really appreciate going into that detail because all of that context is absolutely necessary, not only just to understand what makes this band so great and what they had to fight against to have their success, but it plays a very integral role into the album you write about Time's Up because, um, as they say in the book, it was a very difficult time. Corey Glover says that despite the success on the outside, they weren't feeling it on the inside. And Vernon Reed felt they were like burdened by responsibility. I think I read that in there. Um, And so when they started making this album, Vernon described it as a kind of dystopian optimism. And I was wondering if you can tell us more about that because um, all of that seems to be a response to everything leading up to this album and it's just, it's all interconnected and it, and it, and it feeds each other in a very profound way that comes through in this album. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, and, and, you know, when, when we talked about that, you know, it was in terms of the songs on the record, you know, you listen to these songs on Time's Up and of course, you know, they could have been written, you know, this year, you know, unfortunately, um, all the things that are on there are things that we're still grappling with. We're still grappling with, you know, police brutality. We're still grappling with the, you know, the, our imperiled environment. We're still grappling with, um, and, and, and actually this is, was prescient, you know, the internet and the computer age and tech and, and, you know, in all the ways that it's supposed to be helpful. In some ways it is, it's also harmful and um, chaotic and has, and has done in some cases more damage than good. Um, And as humans, we're still trying to figure out how to, how to use it and harness it and, and, and get the best out of it. Um, So, you know, from a sonic and, and, you know, a musical perspective, yeah, dystopic, optimism and the lyrics um, is spot on. But I think also personally um, in thinking about, yeah, where this band was, where they'd had all of this huge success um, and they had accomplished things that had not been accomplished by a black rock band in um, a very long time. Um, and they didn't know it then, but would not be, you know, repeated. Um, they did, I think, feel some sense of, you know, Greg Tate put it in his Greg Tate way. Um, but you know, there's no half-stepping, you know, you can't, you know, you can't have your, you know, you can't rest on your laurels, you know, you can't just make a vivid two. I mean, they could have made a vivid two and, you know, we can talk more about that later, but, but they were not trying to do that. Um, they were trying to top vivid, you know, they were trying to, um, move out of some of the boxes that they'd been placed within. Um, I think they were, their music was simplified a lot into like, kind of like funk metal kind of thing. 
And they were, they were a lot more than that. And they were always pushing the boundaries and always trying to expand the idea of what rock is, um, you know, in all the ways that white artists like, I don't know, Blondie or David Bowie or, um, you know, you really kind of take your pick. Um, we're always lauded for moving between genres and um, pushing the boundaries of rock, you know, a band like Living Color they, well, I think, ultimately paid a price for doing that. But that's what they always wanted to do is always expand the idea of what rock is. So, you know, that's why they had like a Queen Latifah on Time's Up, you know, an Amacio Parker and a Dougie Fresh. Um, so, yeah, I think dystopian optimism, certainly in terms of some of the lyrical stuff, you know, Time's Up and the, the you know, basically saying... Well, our time, our time, our time will soon be up. Um, our time is maybe probably up now. Um, in 1990, um, being skeptical and um, 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 feeling some trepidation about the computer age um, with information overload, um, having a song like "This Is This Is the Life" as that final song that you know, is really uh, an amazing song for a band to have written, I think, you know, especially, you know, a young band who were just in the midst of experiencing the highest highs um, in their career. Um, but a song that's basically saying, yeah, things will sometimes be good, but thing, but that, you know, your life is what your life is and you have to accept what, you know, the life you have and it's not going to always be great and your loved ones are going to die at some point and, you know, all these things. So yeah, sonically, lyrically, but I think also just personally for the band, they were um, optimistic um, on a high when they wrote Time's Up and were in the studio um, but also they were very aware, uh, as they always were, of all of the very real um, problems that were going on uh, in the larger culture, but also specifically um, issues that were of, of deep importance to Black folks. Um, you know, again, this is a band that like emerged in the late 80s, early 90s, when they were very, 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 very successful with that opening record at the end of the eighties. Um, and these are, you know, again, four men who grew up in the black middle class with a certain amount of, of economic privilege. Um, but they were keenly aware that it was one of the worst times, you know, for like regular black folks in the U S in New York in the late eighties was not a good time for black folks. And they're very, very aware of that. And, you know, and I'll say one more thing about, you know, and this goes along the lines of kind of, you know, intersectional identity, right? Like they are, they had some class privilege growing up. Um, they then had some success in that first record, but as Corey put it, he didn't, they didn't, they never stopped feeling like a, um, like they had to keep grinding, right, because of their race and because of the skepticism that the rock infrastructure kind of never stopped having despite their success uh, and always feeling like they had to prove themselves. 
And I think um, just being black men and having everyday struggles, I think a wonderful example of this is, you know, a story that Vernon didn't tell me, but, you know, I'd read it somewhere else where he was talking about right in the height of the success of Vivid and, you know, he's signing autographs after a show and he's simultaneously trying to hail a cab, you know, it's after a show and he's outside and he's simultaneously trying to hail a cab in New York city and cannot get a cab to stop. And he's fucking Vernon Reed at the height of living colors, commercial success, and he can't get a cab. So anyway, um, dystopian optimism, right? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. There's so many incredible themes in this album, and that's one of the great qualities of, of, of the album, besides it just being sonically and aesthetically and musically brilliant, is just how prescient a lot of the themes are. As you said earlier, they're, they're songs that we could, we, we could write, well, sorry, they could write today. And the opening track, Time's Up, Will Calhoun described as Bad Brain's Energy into a Climate Change song. And that's one of the biggest existential threats that we face right now. And they wrote about this over 30 years ago. Can you tell us more about that track? Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, You know, they're big fans of bad brains, of course. And um, they wanted to find some way to do an homage. And, um, and also Corey, had said to me that he always, always, always wanted to do a hardcore song. He was really into hardcore. Uh, you know, as I said, he grew up listening to a lot of different forms of music, but um, hardcore came later when he was a teenager and, um, you know, would go to shows in, in, in New York city. And uh, so, yeah, so he wanted the chance to do a hardcore song. Living color wanted a chance to pay their respects to bad brains. And, and then Corey came up with, you know, these lyrics about the environment and what was going to happen. And, um, and Vernon, you know, talked about just being amazed and thinking it was brilliant, you know, the words. And, and it was very unique because that wasn't exactly what folks were singing about, you know, in hardcore at that time, you know. Um, so, yeah. Definitely uh, um, a wake-up call, meant to be a wake-up call. I think that the music itself offers a nice kind of um, parallel or a nice kind of um, mirror, right, to to what it's meant to be, um, um, you know, 
evoking for an audience. You know, it's meant to shake you up. It's meant to wake you up. And of course, you know, that song, um, well, certainly when I first heard it, absolutely and utterly knocked me on my ass. I was like, this is just, wow. Um, so, so yeah, time's up. Prescient and, um, and also just, um, just a really fantastic song and an incredible way to start a record. Oh, absolutely. It is, it, it is quite a statement. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really brilliant song. Um, you were mentioning earlier that one of the great qualities of Living Color was how they wanted to push the limits of rock and roll is and how we can perceive it. And part of that was that they experimented with a lot of different forms and genres, mixing them together. And we hear a lot of that on New Jack theme. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that track. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a song that is really interesting. You know, it's like... Um, you know, kind of metallic, but also there's like a house, there's like a, like a, like a house element to it, you know, like a dancey house element. And, um, and I always thought this track was really interesting, um, just lyrically, because of course it's about a, um, a drug dealer who, who, you know, is unrepentant, you know, who's just, who's just like, Hey, you know, this is how I make my money. I make a lot of it. I don't have a lot of options. You know, tell me, basically tell me what else I should be doing that I could be doing that's going to afford, you know, the lifestyle that I have now. Like in my, in my position, tell me what else I could be doing. So it's really like a very pointed um, social critique, obviously, you know, thinking about all of the, the structural break you know, all the structural issues that, that can create a situation where someone um, really does have limited options, you know, and someone really um, is in a situation where intellectually it may be difficult, more difficult than someone would think to really, um, you know, say why <laughs> someone should do something else uh, with their options so limited. So I always thought that was such an interesting song, a really smart song, a really great way of talking about these larger structural problems um, without being boring, right? Um, but then also, yeah, musically, it's just this really interesting mix of dance, kind of dance music with like a metallic feel. Um, and, you know, Living Color were always just so great and, and are and continue to be great at... Um, bringing different sounds together that you don't think would go together. Um, but then they do quite beautifully. There's a track on the album called fight the fight. And Corey had said something very interesting about it in which he said that every aspect of his life has been in a struggle to change the system. And I think you hear that uh, very distinctly on the track. So I wanted to um, get your insight into that and the band's passion to use music as a resource to challenge systemic issues. Yeah. So, you know, I talked about this in the book and, and, and of course that chapter with the, with the, that focuses on the critical life of the album. Um, and also I, I go back to vivid too, because um, I feel like it's important to, see you know how they were received when they first emerged um and then how the critics shifted 
um, with Time's Up. Um, yeah, I, I all, all I can think, you know, when, when, when reading all those reviews, when I was doing research for the book was, gosh, this had to be really annoying, you know, just like constant, you know, and of course, writers don't always write their headlines, and writers generally don't write their headlines, you know, and so many punning headlines about their skin color, you know, and playing rock and whatever. Um, but the but the articles themselves, you know, and the interviews themselves were just so focused on that. And, you know, and sometimes you'd have critics who, who would just say, this is this is absurd that I'm having to rehearse this and have this conversation, because of course, rock is black, and oh, this is insane, you know, but but not all critics were doing that. Many critics were having the conversation again and why rock and, and, you know, and whatever. Um, so yeah, I always thought, Oh my gosh, when I was reading it, all those reviews this must've been so, so tedious, but, um, but you know, I really, honestly, they were the perfect for people to keep having this conversation as tedious as it must have been for them uh, because of their education. It, you know, was their comments were never just tossed off. You know, they were never just, um, you know, just off the top of their head, just whatever spouting stuff. It was always informed by education, by um, formal education, by um, education, you know, in the streets, when thinking about Corey Glover and his activism, um, education in their homes, um, just always really caring about these issues from young ages. So, you know, they really truly were the right band to have had this kind of success, to have had the opportunity to talk about these issues, to have been able to have a platform to speak about things that were meaningful to them um, as Black people, as Black men. Um, And, you know, yeah, I I really, I think that they um, were were the exact right people at the exact right time to do this and simultaneously to be reclaiming rock as Black, which, you know, I don't know. Um, it was such an important conversation to have at that time. There's one more song I wanted to ask about before we talk about the more personal aspects of the book. Um, and it's, this is the life because Vernon called it the most important song on the record. And I wanted to tell, I wanted to ask you more about why he felt that way about, about that song. Yeah. Um, I think Vernon thinks that way and he's, you know, we, we talked about that and, and, um, and I think some of that ended up in the book, but I think for him, again, this is a song that he wrote at the height of their success. You know, they, they were, they were, you know, young men, he was a little bit older. He's a little bit older um, than uh, other folks in that lineup of living color. Um, I think he was probably somewhere in his late twenties or so when he wrote that maybe he was 30 by then. Um, and, uh, or early thirties, but, you know, still very young and having all the success and, um, 
it's an interesting song to write at that point in your life, you know, to you're sort of settling down, you know, back to this dystopic optimism, right? Like you're, there's all this energy and all this excitement and all these things I want to tell you, I want to tell you in this record about all these things that are happening, all these things we care about and all these things that perhaps you should care about. Um, And then that last song is like a gathering everyone up and settling everyone down in a very personal philosophical conversation about life and you know and how we all have these dreams and goals and aspirations and um or we just simply want our lives to be different or we want our lives to be a certain way and um the reality is that we have some control but we don't always have all the control um and you know our lives they're just like fundamental things that we're gonna have to accept about what we have, you know, the tools we have, right. The, 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 and, and the things that are just going to always be out of our control. Like people are just going to die. Like they just are. And people we care about are going to die and it's going to be awful, but you know, this is part of life and part of living. And um, so I think he feels like this record is this song is the most important song on the record because, you know, as he put it, this is a song that was with the band um, at the height of their success, right? Because they play this song still. It's with the band when, you know, and I'm paraphrasing Vernon here, when they were not particularly liking each other. You know, they did have a period where they broke up and came back together again. Um, when they were not particularly liking each other, right? Um, it was with them when, you know, he had Greg Tate still in his life. Um, and it's with him now that Greg is gone, you know, um, and it's going to be with him when he's losing parents, you know? And so I think that's why he feels like it's a really important song because it's talking about all those things and it's stuff that he hadn't really experienced yet, but could look ahead and see what was inevitable. Um, and it's just an opportunity for others, I think, to look ahead, right? And see what's inevitable and to think about appreciating your life and treating it like it's special and the precious thing that it really is to be alive um, with all of its hardship. So, yeah. So not only does your book do a really wonderful job in documenting this history of a very important band and album, but it's made a lot richer because you discuss the personal impact that Living Color had on you. And you open your book describing your first experience seeing Living Color live. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that show. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, <laughs> it was um, the first show that I'd gone to that was, um, that had a, a, a mosh pit. And that would be the first of many because <laughs> during the 1990s, everything was about the mosh pit and even bands that were, not all that heavy, there'd be like a spontaneous random mosh pit because young people at that time really liked mosh pits. Um, But anyway, I had never been to a show like that and I didn't know what to expect. I went with my uh, boyfriend at the time who was very familiar with mosh pits, who had spent a lot of time at CBGB's going to their hardcore matinees every week um, so 
you know, when I went to the show, I was, it was, it was him and me and then a good friend of his and my, and my, um, college roommate. And, um, you know, when we got there, I was so excited because I'd heard the record. I thought I love the album. I love Time's Up so much. And I was so excited to go and see them live for the first time and, um, didn't know what to expect. And, you know, he, Matt was his name, was like, hey, you know, where do you want to stand? And my friend and I were just like, oh, you know, let's get as close as we can. Um, let's go up to the front. And his face was just like, wait, are you sure? And we're like, yeah, yeah, up front, up front. You know, we were getting impatient at that point. What is this person on about? Like, well, of course we want to be in the front. <laughs> and then, yeah, that was a bad idea. Really bad idea. Um, yeah, I'm amazed that I stayed on my feet as long as I did, which was not very long and really um, was afraid, like really thought I was going to get hurt. And, um, you know, thankfully Matt came and got me. Um, the only other experience I could think of like that was seeing The Cure in 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 Ireland. Um, uh, um, and, uh, you know, in feeling like, I might, and there was not a mosh pit, but just the, everyone was like jumping up and down simultaneously. And it was thousands of people. And then I fell at some point and then, yeah, that's not good. So anyway, it was fun. I had a great time, but you know, after that, we just moved way back <laughs> and I enjoyed the rest of the show from farther back. So, so you've written a lot about um, growing up loving rock music. Um, and in this book, you talk about how you thought of yourself as an interloper because you believe that at the time rock music was white. And we touched upon those um, that, that topic earlier. Um, but from, from your perspective, what was it like to hear Living Color openly engage with audiences about rock's black origins in this art form that you really deeply loved and appreciated, but hadn't complex and incomplete i don't maybe that's not the right word but but um just that kind of relationship so that's a great question thanks yeah i um well it meant everything (laughs) you know that's why that's one of the reasons why uh living color became a band of so important to me and um and it's still really important to me and inspired me to want to do the 33 and a third on this record and, and not just talk about the record, but have a chance to talk about them and have a chance to talk about their um, impact on me. Um, not just my musical life, but my personal life. Like they really uh, opened my eyes to a lot of things and um set me on a path to reclaiming rock music as black for myself, which was really, really important. Um, made such a difference, you know, from the moment that I stopped feeling sheepish about being in those spaces and being, you know, rock shows, it, 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 it made a huge difference. Um, you know, it doesn't change what other people are thinking, right? It doesn't, it doesn't change, um, the gaze of other people, but it did change my own internal sense of, oh yeah, I belong here and this is my music. And so, yeah, I'm be forever grateful to Living Color. And, you know, and I was also just was so 
just in, just awed by them because they were so outspoken and so unafraid to be outspoken. And, um, and uh, that just wasn't at all, like I didn't have a voice like that, you know, I didn't have <clears throat> that sort of confidence at that time. So, which is one of the reasons why rock music has always spoken to me, you know, like, um, you know, it always was a way of, um, somehow transmitting um, my feelings and thoughts into some sort of a voice that wasn't really my own, but music, rock music in particular was this vehicle for me to get out a lot of these feelings um, and also to live vicariously, I think, through some of these people, you know, with their um, fearlessness and, um, um, but living in the, in the case of living color, really just like their political um, um, just, you know, uh, fierceness and, um, um, you know, righteousness, but also their, 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 their fearlessness in talking about these things. Yeah. They made a huge, huge impact on me. There's something very interesting you wrote in your book and I want to read it here, um, because I, I think it's incredibly fascinating and I want to read it before I ask my question. And it's, um, you say, I sometimes marvel at how I came of age during the Reagan 1980s and at a time when white was the default in every realm of American culture. And this fascinates me on a number of levels because I never really experienced the Reagan 80s. I was born in 1987, but now um, with you know the, the Trump administration, the influence that it has had on American politics and how a lot of Reagan um, political ideology has now been co-opted to push the country towards a more white Christian nationalist nation, um, I get very fascinated um, about how that was perceived 40 years ago. And, you know, especially with, with your voice as, as a black woman, because part of that um, co-opting of Reagan that they're doing now and where this is going is that it's, it's designed to, um, bring about the worst aspects of that culture to reinforce this white Christian nationalist thing that they're doing now. And I just wanted to get, just get your thoughts on someone who lived through that with your experiences and how that has shaped you over, over the last couple decades. Wow. That's a fantastic question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I still, I think about this. I think about this from time to time um, because I'm old enough to have lived, um, you know, being a kid in the seventies doesn't really count because I was shielded from a lot of stuff, but not completely, totally. But, um, but you know, I'm, I'm old enough um, to have lived in New York city in a time. And I don't know what it's like right now. I don't live there anymore. I haven't lived in New York since 2001. Um, but you know, I left when I was 32 and I lived there long enough to, um, remember what it was like where you just did not go as a black person into certain neighborhoods and not just because you would be the only one, but because you would be taking your life into your hands. You know, I am old enough to remember New York city in the 1970s when I had an uncle who did accidentally, I don't know if it was accidentally or not, but like was riding his bike in 
a Bensonhurst or a you know a Jones Beach, not Jones Beach, a um, Howard Beach or whatever it is, one of those neighborhoods, Sheepshead Bay, and was called the N word all the way through. Like for that one moment, he was in the wrong block. Like all the you know, um, so yeah, I I it's very interesting to have grown up in a time where no one was trying to hide their racism. <laughs> like, you know, there had been um, some legislating that was trying to change some things, um, some legislation that was trying to change some things, but, you know, people's minds and hearts are what they are. And certainly, yeah, in the seventies, no one was really like trying to hide their racism. Um, uh, and in the eighties, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a time where all the movies I watched, all the TV I watched, um, unless it was a specialized show, you know, that was a black show, like, I don't know, the Jeffersons or Good Times or whatever, unless it was specifically speaking um, to or about black people, and it was often a certain black story that was being told um not necessarily a capacious one but a you know a particular narrative unless it was that of course it was going to be white like everything was white you know i think about the movies the teen movies because you know of course the 80s the whole teen movie thing was really big and i think about the john hughes movies i watched and loved i'm gonna say again i loved those movies now I watch those movies. I'm just like, oh my god! <laughs> you know, like, not all of them, but some in particular. You know, really, 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 really problematic. Um, but yeah, I just, I just took it for granted that I wasn't going to see, you know, anyone on a TV show that looked like me, unless it was specifically a black show. Um, I wasn't going to see anyone on a film that had any kind of situation that would be legible to me unless it was a specific black film targeted to black people (laughs) um such was the segregation you know um and so and then of course even beyond that stuff just the very very real as i was saying you know the war on drugs leading to the mass incarceration that we have now um the trickle down economics that did not trickle down, certainly didn't trickle down to my family. Um, The, again, just the race relations in New York were abysmal in the 1980s. I mean, abysmal. Again, strict segregation, um, you know, in a melting pot like New York with millions of people. And of course, people had to connect on the streets and on the subways and then mass transit. But people lived separately you know, black and white were really, really separate in the eighties in New York city. Um, and probably still, um, but yeah, young black men and people were taking their lives in their hands. And of course there were some very high profile cases of, you know, black men being, you know, murdered for just being in the wrong place in the wrong time, uh, the wrong neighborhood. Um, So it is amazing to me that I somehow got through that 
not necessarily emotionally unscathed, but certainly physically. And I'm, I still marvel at that. It's like, how did I, you know, how did I make it through there um, and still have my sense of self intact? Uh, because it was, yeah, it was really not, not a great time for black folks in, in New York City in the 80s. So thank you th- for, for going through all of that. It's an incredible album, an incredible book, and you, you wrote about it so beautifully. So my, my only question for you now to end our discussion is, what are some of your favorite songs from the album? <laughs> yeah. Um, so Time's Up uh, is absolutely a favorite. Um, this is The Life, which I think I may have said is probably my favorite song on the album. Um, it spoke to me when I was just 21 years old. Uh, and again, I hadn't experienced, um, the loss of a parent yet. I hadn't, you know, but I was struggling to, um, achieve certain things. I had all these dreams. I was really at the beginning of my journey and trying to figure out how to realize some of them. And, um, it was kind of what I needed to hear at that time. Um, and it's something I'm still working on. I'm still trying to accept things as they are and have gratitude at all times. But, um, but this was something that set me on that path to at least trying to do that. Um, and then I think what else I really love pride. Um, of course those lyrics were really, really, um, meaningful to me. Don't ask me why I play this music because it's my culture. So naturally I use it. Um, and what else, what else do I really, really love on this? Oh, and love rears this ugly head is also, um, one of my favorites. Um, you know, when I heard it, I was in, uh, in a relationship and in love and it just, I just thought it was hilarious and, um, and also, you know, very relatable in that moment for me. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'd say those four songs are probably my favorites on that album. Well, Kimberly, this was a really engaging conversation and I had a wonderful time. Uh, this is a great book and I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Thank you so much again for having me. And it was such a great conversation. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Kimberly Mack. Her latest book is Living Colors, Time's Up, and is published by Bloomsbury Academic.